Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. If you ask most Christians to explain the events of Bible prophecy, most Christians would break out in a cold sweat. They couldn't do that. An understanding of end-time events is both possible, but it's also crucial. That's why the Bible devotes so much space to future things. And today, we're going to try to get the big picture of Bible prophecy. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffers. For many Christians, the end times can really be a confusing and hard to understand topic. When the world finally does come to an end, how will the events unfold? Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress outlines the seven major prophetic events that will precede and follow the second coming of Christ. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. More than ever before in my lifetime, perhaps more than ever before in America's history, people are watching the signs of the times and wondering what's coming next. The world powers are shifting, and it's hard to foresee the outcome. Well, the events preceding the end of the world are no mystery. In fact, they're fully outlined for us in Scripture, in books like Revelation, Daniel, Matthew, 1 Thessalonians, and many others. But often, Christians struggle to piece these puzzle pieces together and get a holistic view of God's prophetic timeline. And that's the focus of my current teaching series called Perfect Ending. Now, before we get started, let me draw your attention to a resource I've written for you that's intended to enhance your study of God's perfect ending. It's my best-selling book that answers some of the most common questions about the last days. Over 200 pages in length, I've titled my book, Perfect Ending, Why Your Eternal Future Matters Today. And when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, I'll make sure a copy is sent to your home right away. Along with my book, I'll also include a very popular resource, a multi-folded brochure called The Bible Prophecy Chart. It's conveniently printed so that you can slip a copy inside your cover of Perfect Ending. David and I will give more details later on, but right now, it's time to get started with our study. Today, I want to give you a bird's-eye view of the entire landscape of end times prophecy. I've titled today's message, Getting the Big Picture. Today, we're going to try to get the big picture of Bible prophecy. And in the weeks ahead, we'll look at each of the events, but today we're going to look at the map, the overview of Bible prophecy. And specifically, I want to do three things. I want us to, first of all, define each of the seven events that are still awaiting us that precede and follow the return of Christ. Secondly, after we define those things, I'm going to give you a key scripture for each of those events as we try to make sense of it. And finally, and very briefly, I'm going to conclude uh, with Matthew 24 and 25 and look at it important question that Jesus raised in that passage. You notice that there is a cross here representing the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And immediately after that cross, you see the first event or time period we're going to look at called the church age. I want you to write this down as the definition of the church age. The church age is that period of time from Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came 
until the rapture during which Gentiles are invited to participate in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Let me say it again. The church age is that period of time from Pentecost until the rapture during which Gentiles are invited to participate in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. We are living in that time of the Gentiles when Gentiles can become a part, a joint heir of the Abrahamic blessing. The end of the church age, the end of this time of Gentile blessing is going to be the second event that is on your chart called the rapture of the church. This is how the church age ends. It ends with the rapture of the church. The word rapture comes from a Latin word, rapturo, that in turn comes from a Greek word, harpazo, which means to snatch away. And here's the definition of the rapture. Write it down. The rapture is the snatching away to heaven of all Christians before the beginning of the tribulation. It is the snatching away to heaven of all Christians before the beginning of the tribulation. And the key passage in the Bible about the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4. Turn over there, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 4. By the way, the way you find 1 Thessalonians, all the T's are together in the New Testament. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's the description of the rapture. Some people say the rapture is nowhere in Scripture. The word's never used. Oh, yes, it is, and here it is. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo, raptured, there's the word. We shall be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is the rapture of the church. And following the rapture comes the third event on your chart there, the tribulation, the time we call the tribulation. Now, here's the definition of the tribulation. This isn't just a time of persecution. It's not hard times. There's a very specific seven-year period of time that are the final seven years of Earth's history. And here's the definition of the tribulation. The tribulation is that seven-year period that begins when the Antichrist signs a peace covenant with Israel, and it ends with Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The tribulation is that seven-year period of time that begins when Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel and ends with Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Let me give you this definition while you're turning there of the second coming. The second coming of Christ is the visible return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on the earth. The second coming of Christ is the visible return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on the earth. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, all the world forces are going to gather together to try to defeat Antichrist. Tired of his tyrannical rule, the world forces are going to decide we're going to overtake this dictator. And they are going to assemble, the Bible says, on the plain of Megiddo. We call it Armageddon, the plain of Megiddo. When Napoleon stood there, he said, this is the greatest natural battlefield in all of the world. And all the world forces are going to be assembled there to make war against the Antichrist. 
But as they do so, suddenly the clouds are going to part and notice what everyone is going to see. Verse 11, John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war and the armies which are in heaven, that's you and I, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him, Jesus, on the white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we return with him at that time. That's the climax of the great tribulation. Why does Christ return visibly, literally, to this planet? That's the fifth item on your chart, to establish his kingdom on earth, which we call the millennium. That word milli means a thousand, annum, year. It is the thousand-year period of time during which Christ will reign on the earth, fulfilling God's promises to Abraham and his believing descendants. Let me say it again. The millennium is that thousand year period of time when Christ will reign on the earth, fulfilling God's promises to Abraham and his believing descendants. Remember we saw last time, God made an unconditional promise to Abraham and his believing descendants of a land, of a seed, and a blessing. God has to fulfill that promise to believing Israel. And the millennium is the time when all of believing Israel will inhabit all of that real estate God has planned for them. It will be a time, according to 2 Samuel 7, when one of Abraham's and David's descendants, Jesus Christ, will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule over all the earth. It will be a time when the earth, though not recreated, will be renovated. During this thousand-year period of time, Satan will be bound. People will live longer than they've normally lived. Remember, we looked at that passage in Isaiah 65 that said there'll be no more infant death. And if anybody doesn't make it to age 100, he will be thought to be accursed. There are all kinds of promises in the Old Testament about the renovation of the earth that will result uh, from a partial removing of the curse. Not a total removing, but a partial removing. One of those familiar passages in the Old Testament about the millennium is found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. But with righteousness, he, talking about Messiah, will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breadth of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Verse 6, here's that passage. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What period of time is he talking about? He's not talking about now, that's obvious. Neither is he talking about heaven. There's not going to be any death in heaven. People are going to live a lot longer than 100 years. They're going to live forever. So what period of time is he talking about? These prophecies deal with the reign of Christ on the earth, the thousand-year millennium in which God will fulfill his promise to believing Israel. Now, at the end of the millennium, Revelation 20 tells us, Satan, who has been bound for a thousand years, will be loosed for a little while. He will lead one final rebellion 
And at the end of that rebellion, God will judge all unbelievers at this sixth event on your outline called the Great White Throne Judgment. The Great White Throne Judgment. This is a time when God will judge all unbelievers who have ever lived. The specific definition is this. The great white throne judgment is God's final judgment against all unbelievers who have ever lived. Now, so you don't think I'm making any of this up, I want you to turn over to Revelation 20 where you can see this for yourself. This judgment, God's final judgment against all unbelievers who ever lived. Look at Revelation 20 beginning with verse 11. John says, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, who's from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I'm going to spend an entire Sunday talking about this judgment in detail. But by way of summary, let me point out three important components of this judgment. It's on your outline. First of all, notice the subjects of the judgment. Who's going to be judged? The subject of the judgments are unbelievers. This is a judgment for unbelievers. Notice verse 13 of Revelation 20. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Hades is going to be emptied. Now, who's in Hades? All unbelievers who have ever lived. When an unbeliever dies today, when an unbeliever died in the New Testament, when an unbeliever died in the Old Testament, they all went to Hades. What is Hades? It's not the lake of fire. It's not their final destination. Hades is the temporary dwelling place of the unsaved. It's a place of eternal torment, or torment that although not eternal in Hades, will be in the lake of fire. Remember Jesus told that parable in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man died and he went where? He went to Hades. And Jesus said in Hades, he's lifted up his eyes to Abraham being in torment. And he said, help me, Father Abraham, for I am in agony in these flames. There's no way station that people go to when they die. No, this is a very real place of suffering, but it's not the final place of suffering for the unsaved. That comes later. At the great white throne judgment, at the end of time, God is going to empty Hades of all unbelievers and they're going to stand before God in judgment. This is the final judgment of all unbelievers. What's the basis for the judgment? The basis for their judgment will be their works. Look at verse 13. They were judged, every one of them, according to their works. You may be thinking, wait a minute, judged by their works? I thought God didn't care about our works. Oh, yes, he does. Works are very important, especially if you're an unbeliever. In fact, works are everything if you're an unbeliever. Because what you've said as an unbeliever is, you've said, I don't need the grace of Jesus Christ in my life. I don't need God's forgiveness. I may not be perfect, but I'm good enough to get into heaven. God, I'll, I'll take my chances. I'll let you judge me according to my deeds, according to my works. 
God says, fine, if that's how you want me to judge you, that's how I'll judge you. So at the end of time, everybody who has ever lived, who is an unbeliever, will be judged just as they've chosen to be judged by their works. And so God says, you want to be judged by your works? Let's look at your works. And the books are going to be opened of your life. And you're going to see all of your works, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And suddenly your self-confidence you had in your works is going to evaporate. Because you're going to realize that your works, no matter how many they are, are not enough when measured against the perfection of Jesus Christ. He's the standard by which everybody is judged. And everybody, every unbeliever who's ever lived will understand on that day why he is not being welcomed into heaven. His righteousness is not enough righteousness to merit eternal life. The basis for the judgment will be works. The result of the judgment will be eternal condemnation. Look at verse 14 of Revelation 20. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is, the occupants were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if any man's name was not bound written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And there, like the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, John says. After that event, the final event, that awaits everyone is eternity future. What is eternity future? It is that permanent state of both believers inhabiting the new heaven and earth and unbelievers inhabiting the lake of fire. After this great white throne judgment, the present heaven and earth that have been renovated for the millennium, they're ultimately going to be destroyed by fire. Did you realize everything in this earth is eventually going to melt away one day? This entire planet, this entire universe is going to be destroyed. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter 3, verses 7 and 10. He says, but the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And once this present heaven and earth have been completely destroyed, then God is ready for the new heaven and the new earth. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Look at it with me in verses one to four. After the present heaven and earth are destroyed, notice what John says. He says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. John said, I saw a new heaven, but I also saw a new earth. And I saw this heavenly city coming down out of heaven to earth. As we'll describe in detail in the weeks ahead, the greatest misconception about eternity future for Christians is that we're going to spend all eternity up there someplace. 
floating around on a cloud, plucking a harp. No wonder so few people are interested in going to heaven. No, we're not going to be up there. That's not where we are. John said, I saw the new heaven and the new earth. The new Jerusalem was coming down here. I didn't see people going up to dwell with God. I saw God coming down to dwell with man. This earth is going to be our eternal home. This newly recreated earth, just like God planned for it originally, but even better. That's where we're going to spend eternity. Now, we can buzz around other places if we want to, but our primary home is going to be right here, just as God created us. Doesn't that make you excited to think about what this world's going to look like once the curse has been removed, once the tears and the heartache is gone, and we're going to experience life as God intended it? That's what John says he saw. Eternity future is the eternal future, not only for believers, but for unbelievers as well. Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground. You may be thinking, Pastor, do we really need to know all of this stuff? Is it really even our business about what's going to happen in the future? The last time I stood on the Mount of Olives, I read Matthew 24 and 25 when Jesus and his disciples were there at that very same spot and the disciples said, remember, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus didn't rebuke his disciples for asking that question. Instead, he went into a detailed explanation covering two chapters of Matthew of exactly what was going to happen. He started talking about the great tribulation and then he talked about the coming of the Son of Man visibly for all to see. And then he talked about the judgments that would occur at his second coming. And then he talked about the kingdom that believers would be welcomed into. But curiously, Jesus never said anything about the rapture. Didn't speak about it. Now you would think if the disciples wanted to know, Lord, tell us what things are going to happen you would think Jesus would talk about the rapture. Why didn't he mention the rapture? Is it because the rapture is simply a figment of our imagination and it's really not going to happen and we are going to go through the great tribulation? Before you go out and build your bomb shelter in the backyard and start loading up on peanut butter and tuna fish, I encourage you to come back next week. Because next week, we're going to talk about the rapture of the church and why I am absolutely convinced that no Christian is gonna be left behind for the Great Tribulation. I've been studying the Bible for several decades, and I've been teaching about Bible prophecy most of my life. As a result of the countless hours invested in this topic, I'm convinced that Christians will not remain on earth for the Great Tribulation. And I urge you to listen again next time, because I'm going to explain how I've come to that conclusion. But right now, I want to share a note I received from Angela. She wrote, Pathway to Victory has touched my life. I've been struggling with recovering from cancer, and that's when I found Pathway to Victory. I thank you so much for providing this ministry, and I pray for your ministry because it brings hope, and you breathe life into the lives of so many people. 
Well, thank you for those encouraging words, Angela. And if you're a financial supporter of Pathway to Victory, let me say those words of gratitude really belong to you. You're the one who's making it possible for Angela and others like her to hear the hope-filled truth of God's Word. Today, when you invest in the ministry of Pathway to Victory by giving a generous gift, I'd like to show you our thanks by sending a copy of my best-selling book, Perfect Ending. It comes with a highly requested ministry-exclusive companion tool for my book called The End Times Illustrated, a panorama of Bible prophecy from Genesis to Revelation. If you sometimes feel like these matters of biblical prophecy and their precise timing get a little fuzzy in your mind, you're not alone. Many Christians are uncertain about the chronology and details of Bible prophecy, and these practical resources represent decades of personal study to help bring you clarity on these complicated but important topics. Here's David with all the details, and I'll look forward to hearing from you today. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. To request your copy of Dr. Jeffress's best-selling book, Perfect Ending, Simply contact Pathway to Victory today with a generous gift. The book also comes with a companion guide called The End Times Illustrated, a panorama of Bible prophecy from Genesis to Revelation. Here's our toll-free phone number, 866-999-2965, or make your donation online at ptv.org. And for your gift of $75 or more, you'll also receive the entire Perfect Ending teaching series on both CD and DVD. To request your copy, call 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. You're always welcome to write to us as well. Here's the mailing address, P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. That's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for a message on the rapture titled, Not Left Behind. That's Friday here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.